Balancing Death Kirk is a weekly Keyforge podcast focused on competitive play. The podcast is hosted by Kita Mode and Kodamarin. The show is here for listeners to gain a better understanding of how to evaluate decks, how to evaluate their own board position, and how to anticipate opponents' decisions. Without further ado, here's this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of Bouncing Death Cork. I am Kiramod. I'm here with Kodamarin. How's it going? And today we're going to do an overview of racing deck uh, structures in Keyforge. So I think if you've been listening to this podcast, you've heard us talk a lot about cards plus board, about our board, and about how to build an infrastructure of a deck. And I think this has been a blind spot a little bit on our part, but it's also been a piece of missing knowledge that now that we've been playing a little bit more, I think we understand that this that you can play a bunch of cards to gain amber and race and really win a game effectively in this game. Yeah, I've I've been aware of racing decks for a while. I, I guess my biggest concern with bringing up racing decks in this format is that racing decks don't really matter from certain levels of play. Like at your local tournament, it's not going to matter. A lot of times when you're playing online, it's not going to matter. If you're playing in a sealed, it's definitely not going to matter. It's only at like higher levels of play because racing deck compositions are very strange. Or at least good racing deck structure. There's a lot that we're that we were learning about this, you know, personally and as a community. But um, the, the a lot of decks can play a bunch of cards to gain amber, and I don't think that's good enough. And I still don't think that's good enough. I but I have I'm learning, and I'm getting a couple decks, and I'm playing against a lot of decks that can just jam a bunch of amber cards and are winning. And I go, why is that? What is the flip switch? What do they have that the other decks didn't? And I think that we're ready to talk about. Um, what these decks look like, um, how they play differently, what they value, and what their overall game structure should look like, and and give it more of uh, more credit than we have been in the past. Yeah, and so for talking about these decks, or at least for this specific episode, is we're going to talk about this deck from like a basic hierarchy. So if you listen to one of our previous episodes, a hierarchy of winning and Keyforge, our pyramid that we use is we say at the base. It's board control in the center. It's key control, and then at the top is big plays. Um, the base is what we primarily want to talk about in this episode uh, for racing dice, because when we say board control, what we're really talking about is infrastructure. So infrastructure for a, for a regular deck, for for a, for a typical typical deck. And before we get delve too deep into this. I don't want to classify decks, you know, on the whole as a racing deck or a regular deck or a board controlled deck, but there are strengths and weaknesses that every deck has, and maybe this is a different tool that you're playing a game and you're not winning with this deck or you're not winning against a certain deck and you say, oh, what if I value things differently? What if I took this other rubric for winning and applied it to my deck now? And that's what we kind of want to explore with this episode. Yeah, so um, in a regular deck, right, when, when, when you want a board, the, the value of the board is that your worst case scenario is you can always reap, right? Like if, if I have three creatures on the board, my baseline expectation for any turn is I declare my board and I reap three times. So if my hand is full of bricks, that's fine. I can just reap. Or maybe I have better options in my hand. Maybe I have a really good board wipe. Maybe I have this great amber play. Maybe I can control your amber to get you off of a key. Like there are other plays that are available, but I have this baseline expectation. Like I'm never gonna have a bad turn so long as I have a board. And one of the things that we actually defined as having a board is getting to a point 
where you don't have to reap to play a turn, where you can just declare a house, draw no cards, gain four, and be happy. But that takes work, that takes time, and I think most decks try to do that. They play guys, they reap with them, and they end up making Amber and winning, ideally. Um, but I think racing decks are trying to flip on, that on their head, because when you're trying to play a race deck, what you're trying to do is you're not trying to build a board. You might be playing creatures and reaping them with them if you get them, but most of your amber comes from cards in your hand that you drew. And the more you play, you gain amber and you draw new cards and you see more tools ripping through your deck to get that amber. So what I personally have noticed separates um, what I basically think of as racing decks from want-to-be racing decks is that the legitimate racing decks always get amber. Right? It's like every turn they are a minimum 2 to 3 amber that's coming from their hand regardless of their board. But a bad racing deck will have some turns where they jam out 6 amber and then other turns where they just jam out 0 to 1. And it becomes a very high variance style deck. And I think that's why a lot of people discount racing decks. It'll be like, oh yeah, I've played against a couple racing decks and they have like 2 or 3 monstrous turns and then they have a bunch of turns where they don't do anything. Or like, yeah, I lost against that, but that's because they drew all their dupe, dupe fairies mm -hmm. and their hunting witch. They, their combo went off. And I think we used to call that the big play. Or like, that's what that felt like. And that's probably what that is for a deck generally. But we're, we're looking at more of these decks that have 18, 20, 22 cards that gain you an amber just as you play them. Maybe they have an amber on it. Maybe it's an urchin, which, you know, steals an amber. Maybe it's uh, Silvertooth, which reaps for one when he, when he drops. Cards that will gain you amber, that's their effect. And a lot of these cards are just, you know, here's a card, Shield of Justice. My guys don't take damage, but I gain an amber. And if I'm playing a deck that I'm trying to race with, I am more than happy to just play that with an empty board, take my amber, and keep on trucking. Yeah, so every deck in the game is going to have a certain amount of cards that don't generate amber. Right? So even if you want a deck that all it does is generate amber and you never use your board to reap, which racing decks, the good ones, never have to reap to win. Um, you're going to have a certain amount of bricks. And this is where I think the biggest mistake people make when they're evaluating the racing decks is, is they just count the number of dots. So they'll look at all their cards and they'll say, okay, how many gold dots do I have? I'll add all that up. How many cards that say steal X amount? You add you that can't, on you top. Add, you add silver tooth because he doesn't have a dot, but he reaps. Exactly, right? So anything that gets you an amber, you just add it all up, and you say, oh, my deck generates 25 amber. I guess that's good. They'll say stuff like that, but really what I think you need to be looking at is how many individual cards can gain you at least one? Because if all of your amber generation is concentrated in, say, 16 cards, that means you have 20 cards that do nothing. And you can't have 20 bricks. Like, that's just not feasible for a deck. What you need to do is you need to have more like 20, 22, 24, even 26 if you can find it. You need that many cards. So that way you just have a very low density of cards that do nothing for you while having enough cards that always do something for you. So you never have a bad turn with this deck and you can keep the pressure. Right. And this is kind of contrasting your worst case scenario of a, of, a, of a normal board state based deck where if you have three guys the worst thing that you can do is reap three darn um in this deck in a, in a in a in a strong racing deck what you really want your worst turn to be is i play two cards i play three cards i gain two or three amber go and there are strengths and weaknesses to that but mm -hmm. what you're really trying to do a lot of is play the cards from your hand draw the new cards that have more amber and then get better hand texture 
it's always going to feel a little weird, but as long as you're playing two, three, four cards at a time and gaining two, three, four amber, you're going to put your opponent in uncomfortable situations where, like, consist. it's not sometimes on turn two, but consistently on turn two, you're looking at six amber, and they didn't want to play their shadow's turn yet, or they're not ready to steal with their with their sequus. So you just get a key. You, you practically run away with the key. You've raced them to it. So bringing this back to the pyramid, right? When we're talking about our hierarchy of winning, the base of the pyramid for board control decks was effectively you want to increase your delta, right? How much amber per turn can you gain versus how much amber per turn can your opponent gain? And so part of that is how much can you yourself gain? And the other part of that is how much can you prevent your opponent from gaining? So in a racing deck, the most fundamental component of a racing deck is that your amber generation is not coming from reaping. It is coming from the cards in your hand. And so my personal rule of thumb is if I look at a deck that I'm going to treat as a racing deck, at a absolute bare minimum, I want to see 20 cards that can get me an amber instantly. If I don't see 20 cards that can get me an answer amber instantly, it's just not going to work. Even if like the all the cards that gain amber are like dust pixies and bait and switches and too much to protect just like the absolute bomb cards it's not gonna matter if i have all these bricks so i want to get my brick count lower and honestly maybe that sounds like a great deck to me i would play that deck but i wouldn't just jam as many cards in my hands as i can i would play it maybe a little bit more conservatively you know try to forge these strong hands um in a, in a racing deck you really don't have time to hold cards. You really have to play the cards to get through your deck. Okay, so let's say I have a deck, like the one I just said. Let's say I have 15 cards that gain amber, but all of those 15 cards that gain amber are like two plus amber, right? It's Virtuous Works, it's Bait and Switch, it's Dust Fixie, it's stuff like that, right? And then the other 21 cards in my deck, let's say it's big creatures, right? Like It's board wipes, it's like, board, it's like the cards that help you build a board. Then at that point, your deck just becomes a standard board control deck that has a bunch of big plays available to it. And is a right? good deck. That sounds yeah, like a great a, deck. It's a good deck, but it's not a racing deck. That's the key thing, mm -hmm. right? And, and when you play a racing deck, the intention of the racing deck is that you're basically going to abandon your board. You're always going to value the highest amber play that you can generate from your hand over potentially the best long-term play by using your board. You're trying to put the pressure on. In, in, and to go back to, uh, to one of the things we talked about in the past, the past, when I talked about playing the three untamed creatures on the first turn versus the Dominator, mm -hmm. one of my points was I like getting my value out of the Dominator because his job is to taunt. But if I'm just trying to jam cards, then I would play do fair, uh, Hunting Witch, Dew Fairy, Dust Pixie, get my Amber, and then just, they die. And I'm not happy that my Hunting Witch dies. Like, if he doesn't die, that's just a bonus. Then I get to get more Amber. But what's most important is that I got three. It's not that they are good cards. It's that they got me Amber. And then the other reason that you would want to just jam the uh, untamed guys in that situation is if you know your deck has a high enough amber density, you know that what you're top decking is going to get you more amber, right? The train doesn't stop. like, And then you can't deck yourself out in this game. So if you run out of mm -hmm. cards in your deck, you just shuffle your discard and you're playing more cards. And as long as every time you're drawing cards, you have a reasonable expectation of amber, you can keep that going. Yeah, not decking out is a real point that... Like, is one of those things, that missing piece of knowledge that I'm kind of realizing. I go, oh, wait, if I just go through my deck, then that means I got guaranteed uh, 22 Amber because I played all my cards, and now I get to go again. Like, that's math that didn't work with my previous card game knowledge that is 
more pertinent and, and stronger now that I have a better grasp on Keyforge in particular. Um, but one of the other things that I, I wanted to talk about that I, that I learned was how many, how premium the removal is. Like we were always mm -hmm. giving it credit, but like what I didn't, like what I didn't put two and two together was, is that like Nocturnal Maneuver, uh, Lost in the Woods, and Nature's Call. These are all three untamed cards that deal with three or two or three creatures at a time. But what's, and I look at those cards and I go, wow, those are great removal cards. But they are incredibly good in a racing deck because they also deal with your opponent's board. And I think this is one of the things that racing decks can't avoid. Like they, they, a good racing deck has to pay attention to your opponent's board. You still have to fight their delta. I don't think you can let Sequus. I, I, I like using Sequus as like he's just a dumb card. But if you have a deck that loses to a Sequus on board, you can't call that a good deck like if he can just sit there and reap all day and capture your amber and just kind of ping you for that one consistently then the board beat you then that's not winning a race yeah and so a big reason that we wanted to do this episode is we're going to do a number of de episodes on racing decks we're going to talk about more deeply their structures what they're going to want to have but what a racing deck is not going to do is they're not going to have house rules like we have in the previous episode and in the next seven episodes where we're going to talk about every house they don't have the same structure right so in a board control deck you want to have your main house that you know builds your infrastructure gains you your amber and sets up your burst house and then you have a support house that plays an in-between role in a racing deck the structure is just different in a way that we don't really want to expand on because it takes some time to do, but we it, will be talking about it later. Honestly, I don't know how house rolls work in a racing deck yet. I'm still learning. I'm sure that there's a lot of really interesting things, like maybe you have a, a support house, which is all about killing stuff, and then your main house, which you get to hold, your burst house, um, you can actually hold cards. Maybe you value archiving more in a burst house because it feels like drawing more cards. Maybe, like, I'm not a big fan of Logos, and I this is reflected when we talk about logos at every time but now that i'm thinking about racing decks i go you know what lab work is plus is an amber and an extra card it really feels great if i didn't have to care about my board to play this card i'd never want to see that in my main house but i really always want to see it in a racing deck and the reason we're putting this episode right now before we go into these houses is we don't want to discount the existence of these decks and the power of these decks they are good but they are again you're going to see them at the top levels of competitive play where people have looked through all of their decks like you're rarely going to see a good race in seat in a sealed event and you know they're just a lot of there are a lot of decks that have a lot of amber cards but aren't good racing decks and i wanted to we wanted to make that distinction clear before we go really deep into the factions yeah and so um racing decks it's really more about terminology I, I have like a rough idea of how i want to classify houses but i haven't thought of the right words to use to classify the house and that's something we're going to hash out um, over the next couple of weeks and we have time because you know we're going to do the house rules for the board control decks first um, but another point to make uh, for racing decks as far as the pyramid goes is that uh, key control still matters now in a board control deck what you want out of your key control is by and large you want to prevent your opponent from making keys but in a racing deck being able to make keys first carry excess values such as a key charge 
Oh, you, oh, sure. Yeah, making going faster than them is very important mm -hmm. in a key charge uh, in a uh, racing deck, and it's all about making your opponent uncomfortable about how fast you're going. But in a in a in a in a normal deck, a turn that you stop them from reaping or, or from forging, you really want to have also built a little bit of a board too. Uh, a bear miasma doesn't really do a ton unless it put you to six or did something. But in a in a racing deck, what it did it actually bought you more cards. Another turn is an, another set of cards, which is your answers that you're looking for. Maybe you do have a gateway in your racing deck, and you need to dig for it. And that's what um, a board control deck wouldn't need would values those tools in that draw power differently than the race does. Yeah, and racing decks also draw more cards. So part of the reason that we have mm -hmm. house rules for board control decks is the idea that like, okay, you want to put your really big play situational cards inside of your burst house, and then you want to have your solid consistent plays inside of your main house. So the idea is that like, if you have three bombs inside of your control deck, you're probably only going to draw one of them, but the one you draw is going to hit. Whereas you contrast that with the racing deck, you're probably drawing all three of your bombs and two of them are just gonna miss, right? You're gonna draw the bait and switch when you're ahead on Amber, but then if you draw all three of your bombs, you're at some point gonna draw your interdimensional graft axis when your opponent has nine Amber, right? Like like at some point it's gonna hit. And because of that, the, the top of the pyramid, the big plays look a little bit different. I think they're a little bit less, um, they're less powerful, the big plays. Mm -hmm. like, like sometimes, yeah, you do hit your your amazing hunting witch combo. Maybe you do actually bait the turn after you forge. But a lot of the time, you end up in the other scenario that we talked about in the holding cards episode, where you have this bait and switch that you actually have to discard because, mm -hmm. you know, you can't afford to take those five chains. You have four cards in your hand. You have three or four shadows cards. You just got to keep drawing. And it feels weird. It feels bad. And I think that's just the nature of the deck. Uh, strategy is that you just have to play cards, draw cards, and take what you can get when you get it. Yeah, you have to believe in your draws, right? You have to believe you in, gotta believe. I am going to draw cards that are going to gain Amber. And again, this is where, um, when I've played against people that have racing decks that aren't fully formed racing decks, where they oftentimes get hung up is they don't trust their draws. They only have 17 cards that generate Amber. And those 17 cards are great. But they know they're not drawing more. They can't afford to discard their bait and switch. They can't afford to discard uh, or, or to like not play their virtuous works as fast as they can. They can't afford to discard their key charge because they know that there's the cavalry's not coming. They know that they could just draw a hand of five creatures and that doesn't do anything for them. It's it's kind of like uh, saying that playing the virtuous works is less good than playing two dumb one amber cards because you're going to either gain three and then draw one card or you're going to gain two and draw two cards and trusting that you're going to draw more sanctum cards that have amber on them makes playing the virtuous works the turn before look a little bit silly even though it's more amber it's less cards and cards are how you're going to win the game by seeing more of them yeah and that that's really the lifeblood and and, and again like it all fits within the pyramid so just to recap the base of the pyramid is the delta right you want to have a high density of amber production cards my personal rule is minimum 20 but your personal rule might be higher than that and then the middle part you still need to block your opponent from getting keys you still need to accelerate your own key creation and then the top of the pyramid and, you, and still you need, need to, big plays. and you need to stop their board you mm -hmm. need to you need to make sure that you have some way to actually play a little bit of interactive game while still pushing yours forward and that's probably not going to happen on creatures but like I've seen a friend with piranha monkeys 
which just does a board wipe thing. And that's not a like these cards are still important to consider, despite not being part of your actual. Yeah, or like condition. poison wave. That's like a perfect racing perfect. card. Yeah. You know, it, it takes care of a bunch of weenies so your opponent loses some of their amber production, but you still are getting an amber on your end, and you can keep pushing your game plan forward. Mm-hmm. Lighting that, light. Yeah, exactly. But that about wrap, wraps it up for, for us here during this episode. Uh, in future episodes, we'll talk more about racing decks, but that's a little bit more like two months down the line. For right now, we're going to be focusing mostly on the house rules for every particular house. And when when we put these episodes out... And when you listen to them, understand that, of course, it's not the Bible. It's not the the most important thing about these decks. A lot of cards have multiple different values. But when you look at them in a different context, um, they're not going to quite always fit with what we're talking about in these house roll videos or exactly. podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, vodka. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, yeah, that wraps us up. Uh, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. We are at Deathcore for either one of them. Uh, we are on every single podcasting service. Uh, tell your friends, grow the show, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.